Good morning. The, uh, there's, a, there's an irony in the, the topic of the, the sermon today in the midst of the, the lack and the weakness of my voice that you'll, you'll find later that's, that's pretty entertaining. Um, so just hold, hold tight for that. Um, I, I will never forget, and most pastors will never forget, the, the first sermon that they ever preached. Right? Uh, it's, it's, number one, probably usually terrible, um, wherever you were, you know. There's a point where you've got to get up there for the first time. You've never done it before. So inevitably, you know, every once in a while, I'm sure Billy Graham, the first time he got up to preach, you know, like 16,000 people came to Christ and he went, well, this is what I'll do for the rest of my life. But for the rest of us, it was a mortifying experience. For me, um, and some of you might have heard this before, but I uh, was on a mission trip as an intern um, coming out of college. I was leading a mission trip of high schoolers to the island of St. Vincent and the Grenadines in the Caribbean. Uh, it's a tough mission trip, but someone's got to do it. And so I spent some time in the, in the beautiful island uh, there, uh, the two islands that, that make up that, that, that country. And we landed, uh, and the first night, yeah, there was a, a church that was up towards the, the top, the northern end of the, of the island, and there was, they needed somebody to, to give a testimony, and they asked if I would be willing to do that, if someone could pick me up that, that morning to go up and and just give a testimony to this church. You know, this, this church from the U.S. has come, and they would want to hear from, from one of them. And so my, my pastor, who was on the trip, kind of not threw me under the bus, but volunteered me to go and, and be that instead of him. And in the morning, as I'm driving up with this, this stranger that I've never met from this church who, who picked me up in what you might be able to describe as a car, I'm not really sure if that's the right word for it, um, I, I recommitted my life to Christ 14 times as I drove up this island cliff road to get to this church. And as we're driving, he asks me what the topic of my sermon is. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you're preaching. And I found out that I would be preaching in about 15 minutes. Uh, and so as I'm driving up, I said, well, you know, it's I don't know, the grace of God. I made up something. I just not, didn't want to look dumb. But I'm thinking, what on earth am I going to preach on, and I get there, and I'm standing up in front of this church of maybe 20, 30 people uh, in the middle of nowhere in the northern end of St. Vincent. It's a volcanic island, so the more north you get, the less populated it gets because volcanoes are dangerous. And so I'm standing there, and the only thing I could think to do in a moment of panic is I, I thought of my, my favorite verse of Scripture in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform anymore to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That way you'll be able to attest what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. I'm like, it's the only one that I, at that point, had remembered with any kind of clarity. And so I opened to Romans 12, and I read the text, and then I looked at it, and I said, I don't know what I'm going to say about this. And I'm panicking, and I looked, and the first word in the translation that I was using was therefore, and then I remembered that I had a college professor who said, you know, when there's a therefore in Scripture, you should always ask, what's it there for? And so I went to Romans 10 and 11 to see, well, what's, the, what's 12, 1 there for? And it was just a recounting of the gospel, and I said, oh, thank God, I can do that on the fly. I can just talk about what the gospel is. Right? And so I, I preached about what the gospel is and said, well, you know, therefore, in light of that, and in, in the moment, and I will tell you, there's no way it didn't tank to high heavens. We had some, some help him lords in there. We had a couple amens towards the end. I think the Holy Spirit might have taken over at that point and put me on autopilot. But I got through it, 
And I sat down and they asked me to keep going because their sermons, they want the hour sermon. Here, if I go an hour, you look at me funny. There, if I go 20 minutes, it's not enough. Right? Here, you'd be like, you just are dying for the day your pastor preaches for 20 minutes or less. You wouldn't know what to do with yourselves. But I get through it. I sit down. They make me go up. I keep preaching some more. And I finally sit down and got through it. And they, the guy drives me home. And I never, ever, ever, ever want to go back to that church ever again. Other than maybe to preach a great sermon and redeem myself. Right? But here's the thing. Afterwards, when I was talking to the people, there, there, was, there was a shaping that had taken place of people in the room. There was an impact that had been accomplished by the people in the room. And, and, it's, and it's funny, I learned two things that day. Number one, you really need to figure out a sermon prep kind of thing. And you always have to have a sermon ready. Right? If you're going to be a leader in the church, whether you're a youth pastor or a pastor or maybe even elder, elders, this is your notice, you should always have a sermon in your head ready to go. Just something. 10, 15 minutes Something that if I were to say right now, get up here, you wouldn't be caught off guard. That was the first lesson I learned. And here's the second. The Lord works profoundly, profoundly, not out of our spiritual strength, but out of our weakness. When we surrender in weakness, in weakness of spirit, and I'm not saying weakness in the, in the sense of and earthly, you have to think of yourself as nothing and, and, and low self-esteem and, and no strength and those kinds of things. But I'm talking about a spiritual weakness. When you submit spiritually to the weakness of yourself and you hand it to God, he will take it and he will use it in mighty ways. Your spiritual weakness is his opportunity to display his glorious strength within you. And so I was able to profoundly impact through God's word a people on an island that I've never met, not because of any of my own doing or goodness or skill or craftiness or cunningness, but simply because the Lord took weakness of spirit and made greatness out of it. It's a lesson that we should all heed and stick to and understand that when we are at our most weak, he is at his most strong. As a matter of fact, I say this all the time, but every time I preach a sermon where I get down from the stage and I go, man, that tanked, that's when I get the most emails. Wow, that was encouraging. Something really hit me. And every time I get down on sta off stage thinking I was the stuff, empty inbox. It's a conundrum. Ask any pastor. They'll tell you the same thing. It is a weird thing that when we use our weakness and we admit to it and we say, Lord, I got nothing. Give me what you have. The Lord will give us his strength. And today we're working our way through the seven churches of Revelation. We are on church number six out of seven, and we've been covering the background of each city and church. And because backgrounds matter, you start to see a pattern that emerges in all the churches. And as we're getting to the end, it's worth just kind of pulling this out for this church today, the Church of Philadelphia. One of the things you notice is that the stronger churches the successful-looking churches are the ones that the Lord reprimands the most, and the churches that seem to be the weakest, the most frail, are the ones that the Lord lifts up in encouragement and praise. The two most kind of frail-looking, small, insignificant churches by outside view standard in the seven churches are the Church of Smyrna, which is the second letter that we covered, and the Church of Philadelphia, which we're going to cover today. They're the only two churches that the Lord has nothing against. 
There's no condemnation spoken against them. They're tiny. They don't matter. From the outside world looking in, it looks like they might actually be dying or dead already. But the Lord commends them and lifts them up in encouragement. The two churches that look like they are the most successful, that have it all together, are the church of Sardis, which we covered last week, and God says they're dead, and the church of Laodicea, which we will cover next week, which also has a significant amount of struggle. It's probably the second most reprimanded church that we see in all of the seven letters. So there's an irony there that those who look the weakest are lifted in strength and commended by God and those who seem to really be thriving and have it all together and have all the ministries and all the money and all the people and the fancy stuff are the ones that he most reprimands. Now, is that a perfect science? No. Is every church that looks like they have it all together debt? No, of course not. But in these seven churches, we see that pattern emerge. And so what are we to make of this idea? that the Lord shines his strength through our weakness, as he does really evidently and obviously in the church of Philadelphia. Let's read it together, and let's spend some time this morning to dig in and find out. I would invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. This is from the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 3, verses 7, all the way through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and you have kept, or sorry, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance." I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world to try to those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God, of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat, guys. Uh, Philadelphia... Not to be confused with Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, although they share something in common. They are both known as the city of brotherly love. Fun fact, Philadelphia was founded in about 189 B.C. by Attalus II, Philadelphus. Philadelphus literally means brotherly love. He was the king of Pergamum, and he had a love for his brother, Eumenes II, who originally was the king of the Pergamum Empire. When, when one of them, when, when Eumenes disappeared for a while in battle, they made Attalus king, and when he returned, he abdicated his throne back to his older brother, 
until the time that he passed and it was his time to rule. There, there was a, a loyalty and a love between those brothers to the point where his name was actually given, Attalus II Philadelphus, he who has a brotherly love. He founded this city, Philadelphia, that we're talking about today. And the love between them was so fierce that when the city was founded, they wanted to be named after that reality. They wanted to be known as a city of love. Right? Pergamum, or sorry, Pergamum. Philadelphia was located in, in the intersection and the junction of a whole bunch of trade routes. And so it was a place that was visited by a lot of people. It was in a volcanic area, which meant it had really rich soil. It produced really great grapes. Philadelphia was known for its wine. As a matter of fact, the chief God that we, that we see, not our, you know, the, the God that we worship, but the chief idol God that they have is the God Dionysius, which is the God of wine. You would have wanted to have tried Philadelphia wine. You probably don't want to try Western Pennsylvania Philadelphia wine. Roger, where are you? Have you tried Western Philadelphia? No, no. <laughs> right, let's, let's not even go there. Right? We're going to stay in our state or go west to the west coast to try our wine. But it was known for those things. It was a thriving city, a peaceful city, a loving city. The church, however, was tiny. The church at Philadelphia was insignificant right? by any standards. Picture the rural church in the middle of nowhere in, let's say, Nebraska that has six members, that has had six members, five of which are related to one another. Right? They share a pastor with three other churches that also have six members. We're talking about a church that by any kind of knowledge or understanding of the world around them had no significance whatsoever. They, just didn't, they were just kind of there. They didn't seem to matter to the outside world at all. And to add to that, in Philadelphia, we had a really large Jewish population. Does this sound familiar? Smyrna was kind of the same way. The Jews made up most of the non-Greek or Roman eventually you know, population there. And so in terms of religion, the Church of Christ that existed in Philadelphia kind of to the people in the city might as well not have existed. Right? It's not that they were really under any kind of a massive threat, but just no one really cared. Imagine hearing about the persecution happening all around you because your brothers and sisters are, are a threat to the cities in which they're in, and yet you actually wonder, we're not even really being bothered because I don't think anybody thinks that we're even worth it. Right? What, a, what a reality to live in as a church of Christ in such a city that is thriving in every other way, that is ripe to be taken. I mean, imagine the, the impact a church like that could have had for the gospel, but yet it doesn't seem to be making an impact. No one seems to care about it, right? And Jesus introduces himself to them in a unique way. We've talked about this. Every letter, when Jesus introduces himself, he borrows a part of his description in Revelation 1 until we get to Philadelphia. The words that he uses have nothing to do with what he talks about himself in Revelation 1. They're unique, and so he introduces himself as the Holy One, the True One, right? Holy means pure, he will not lead them into sin, but in the perfection. There's a purity to the, to the Jesus that is about to speak to them. And the true is to combat and go against the lies that he is about to call out when it comes to the Jewish people. Right? He calls them again, what, a synagogue of Satan. Right? 
not because they're Jewish people, but because they are hypocritical to what the actual faith is supposed to be, right? They're not, they're not the true people that, that, were, that were God's people because they have forsaken Christ. And so he will call them out as liars again. And so he introduces himself as the, the holy one, but the true one, not the falseness that's being spread. I come to you as the one who is true. And then he is coming as the one who has the key of David. And uses his language of, of who will open the doors that no one can shut and shut the doors that no one can open. What's going on with this idea of the key of David? Well, we have to go to Isaiah 22 to see what this is all about. In Isaiah 22, there's a man of Shebna who was a steward right, at the time in, in King Hezekiah's kingdom. And his pride is causing him to be rejected by the Lord. And the Lord is going to reject Shebna and replace him with a man named Eliakim. And the Lord says in Isaiah 22, verse 22, of Eliakim, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And so Jesus is borrowing here the imagery from that passage in Isaiah but he's taking it far beyond what we would think of as the, the kingdom of David, but he's taking it to the kingdom of, of all things, right? It's, the, it's this idea of eternal life. I am the one who is holy, I am the one who is true, and I am the one who has the key. And if I open a door to you, no one will close it. And if I close a door to you, no one can open it. I have the authority in every way. His holiness means he's pure. His trueness means he's trustworthy. And the key of David makes him capable of the things that he's about to promise to this church in Philadelphia. <clears throat> Jesus begins with the familiar statement, I know your works. He said that of almost every church that we've talked about. And he loves the works of the Philadelphian church. We said he has nothing against them. This is the only other church besides Smyrna that he doesn't reprimand. And he says that he finds no fault in them whatsoever. Despite having so little power, they have kept his word and denied, or not denied, his name. The church of Philadelphia was very much powerless. The city didn't care for them. The Jews belittled them. They were small, beat up. They had very little in terms of influence. But what they did have was a steadfast faithfulness and a non-wavering spirit. They're what we would call small but mighty. Maybe in the great scheme of churches, sometimes we might feel that way, don't you think? Small but mighty. Right? What they did have was a steadfast faithfulness. And Jesus takes note of that faithfulness. And the remainder of this entire passage is devoted to one thing and one thing only. It is simply a litany of God's promises to the people of the church in Philadelphia. So let's look at them. First, in verse 8, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Uh, this language of opening doors to the people of God is used all throughout Scripture, and it usually means opening the doors for you know, things like mission or evangelistic endeavors. The, uh, Paul, throughout his missionary journeys, has the doors open and shut at various points of his ministry for God's purposes. But here, I don't think it means that he is about to open their door for missionary endeavors. Because it, it, it's, it's literally the verse after we just talked about the key of David. So I think in this case, what he's saying is, I set before you an open door for salvation, for eternal life, which no one is able to shut. 
So the first promise that he makes to them is eternal life. It's salvation language. God is telling them they will enter his door of rest. And I don't care what the the Jewish people in the town say. I don't care what Greeks or Romans or any other kingdoms that are to come say. You are my people. I am pleased with your works. You have held faithfully steadfast. And I will open the door to you. And you will walk through it. And whatever you think is going to come in the midst of that, just wait and see. It cannot shut the doors that I will open for you. That's the promise number one. In verse 9, we get a little bit of context of the church's plight here. Uh, Similarly to Smyrna, the Jews that are there are spreading lies about the people in that church. They're not a particular threat, but they're still Christians, and it's still the area where Christians are being very heavily persecuted to some degree. And so there are lies being spread, just like in Smyrna. They're lying about what what the motives of the Christians are, and they're going after them in all kinds of different ways. And so... We see, we see that here, but he contrasts it and he says, similarly, God promises that those Jews that are there, that are liars, that he calls from the synagogue of Satan, those particular ones that are there, they will bow at the feet of the people of the Philadelphian church. And when they bow, they will know that I have loved you. He promises them vindication over their enemies. Salvation, an open door, vindication over their enemies. So those are the two promises we have so far. Verse 10 is a little bit contested. There's a debate in verse 10 about the the kind of the end times and what's going on here. Uh, Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Uh, There are some who are convinced that this means that the people in Philadelphia will be spared from the tribulation if you believe in a rapture, if you're, you know, whatever whatever your view of the millennium is. Uh, I I don't think it's it's a significant to understand which of those views is being articulated here, but the point is that they will be spared from tribulation. And when we look at the language that is used in the Greek of this text, it's not really a sparing in the sense of they will be plucked away or that the trials or struggles will be withheld from them, but that the Lord promises that he will carry them through. It's a persevering through the coming trials. And so he promises them salvation, he promises them vindication, and he promises them that they will persevere through any trials that come in the future. And that they will prevail. And in verse 11, there's another encouraging promise. Jesus Eminence soon arrival is a threat, right? He says, I'm coming soon. If you are a church that he's been reprimanding, that's a dangerous statement to you. But if you're a church like Philadelphia that he's blessing, that is a statement of hope. If I were to say to you, Jesus is coming soon, could be tonight, right? Depending on, on where you are with your God, you're either going, yep, please, Lord Jesus, right? You're jumping up and down in your seat or you're going, oh, man, I got some work to do. Right. For the people of Philadelphia, this, this perceived threat of I am coming soon is nothing but a hopeful promise. It's that their endurance that they're suffering through, their insignificance, the way that they feel they don't matter, all of these things are not going to last forever. They're not going to last long in the context of the world and life. They are going to come to an end soon. And for Christians who are faithfully the Lord's, like Philadelphia is, this is a beautiful, beautiful promise. 
We continue the promises in verse 12. When we get there, we now turn to this, this idea of our identity. Right? Jesus promises them that they will be what? Pillars in God's temple. What's a pillar? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that stands firm and true and it doesn't move and it holds up. It's the foundation that holds everything else up above it. Right? They, are, they are not some meek, insignificant people. They are going to be a pillar in the temple of God that will never be removed. They will outlast and live eternally along with their God. Jesus will give them on top of that even more things. What does he promise them? He will give them God's name, and then he will give them his city's name, and then he will give them Jesus' own name himself. This threefold promise is the, the seal on all the other promises that he's made. He's saying, look, your very identity will be wrapped up in who my God is. Right? The implications here are this. You will be God's name. You'll be children. You have the rights of an heir. You will have my city's name. You will be citizens. For those who were under Roman rule, the idea of citizenship was really important. If you're a Roman citizen, you have rights that you otherwise don't have, right? Paul appeals to Caesar because of his Roman citizenship. So they, they, they are treated as God's children who are heirs to the promise. They are treated as citizens of the city of the New Jerusalem with all the rights and privileges that come with that. And finally, they are to have Jesus' very own name. They are to be co-rulers in God's kingdom as Jesus sits on the throne. It's not the first time in the letters of the seven churches that there's a promise that they will be able to co-rule, they will be rulers alongside of Jesus, that they will sit with him, that they will bear the name of Jesus himself. And then we conclude with this familiar text that ends almost every letter. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for Stowe Press? It means this. Do you feel as a Christian like you sometimes have no way of speaking to the world around you? Like we don't have any influence in the culture, like we don't matter. God will open a door that no one can shut. Do you feel mocked or belittled in this world for the faith that you hold? Do you feel like at times the world just thinks that we're a whole bunch of bigoted people gathered together to bigot together about all the things that we want to bigot about? God will make them bow down and know that he has loved you. If that's how we feel. Do you feel weary or frail from the turmoil that Christian life throws at you? God will make you a pillar a steadfast and immovable pillar in the midst of your frailty and your weakness? Do you feel like sometimes you don't matter in the church? Maybe you don't have the gifts that you feel like you should have. Maybe you feel like if you left, it wouldn't really be any different. Maybe you feel like if you left Stoprez this week, that Stoprez would just continue to be Stoprez the way it's always been Stoprez. Well, that's wrong. God tells you that you have a new identity that he gives you a name and he makes you a citizen of his kingdom and invites you to rule as the one who has the very name of Jesus Christ himself. He tells you that you are a part of the body and that as you come to him in your spiritual weakness, that his strength 
will shine through to you. This letter is meant as a letter of encouragement. Last week, I depressed you all. I talked about how everything's dead. This is the opposite of the letter that we talked about last week. He says, I am bringing you a hope. It doesn't matter how impressive we look to the outside world. It doesn't matter how put together we are as a church or as individuals. It doesn't matter how pretty our building or our lives or our houses or our cars are. It doesn't matter how often we read our Bible. It doesn't matter how eloquent I preach or how eloquent anyone else that gets up here preaches. It doesn't matter if we have the shiniest children's ministry. None of these things matter. God will use this place and God will use you and he will gift you as he needs to to accomplish those purposes. He will create this place. He will sustain this place. He will flourish this place. And what does he ask in return? He doesn't ask for great skill. He doesn't ask for the cream of the crop. He doesn't ask that we do and and accomplish everything that the, the Bible tells us we should accomplish. He just simply asks us to do one thing and one thing only, to remain faithful and steadfast. I don't have the skills I need. Remain faithful and steadfast. I don't feel like I can contribute anything. Remain faithful and steadfast. You are this church, and God is the one who gives you the identity and helps you to bear the fruit that you need to be bearing. You may think, you probably do think, that you could never get up here and preach anything worth saying. But I'm telling you, if the Lord wants you to do that, he will put you up here and he will put words into your mouth that may not be eloquent, they may not be pretty, but they will speak to someone in this church who needs to hear those words. And I guarantee you that you, as a part of the body of this church, you have preached to somebody in the midst of this body without even knowing that you've done it. Because you've spoken love and truth into them. There's a giftedness inside of you that you don't even know exists. You may think you could never serve in an area like the children's ministry. But yet, there is a a way about who you are and what you have to offer that is the difference to a kid that doesn't resonate with anyone else. But for whatever reason, they just happen to resonate with you. As awkward as you might think you are. Because the Lord will use it. And in the midst of your weakness, he will be your strength. You might think that you just simply don't matter, but there are people here that are here because you are here. One of the things I love when I talk to people in the church, including this one, is is I ask, how did you come here? And almost always it's, well, I came because, you know, 30 years ago so-and-so invited me and and I stuck around all these years because of their friendship and their love and, and all of the people and all these things. The amount of people that are probably here because you're here, you would, it would it'd be surprised you. It really would. Right? You might think that you don't contribute all that much. Maybe you don't feel like you have the gifts that you need. But I can tell you that there are people here. Maybe you've made a meal that has made someone's year because they could never imagine that a people would care about them enough to do that. And all you thought you did was drop off some food that you would have cooked anyway. But the Lord used that. A thought of your weakness. Maybe your food wasn't even that good. But the Lord used it. Because in your weakness comes his strength. Your gifts, or lack thereof, are made essential and beautiful in the power of God and the new identity that he gives you. And all he wants is your faithfulness. All he asks is that you keep his word and hold up his name. He doesn't need you to feel gifted. He doesn't need you to feel worthy or adequate. He he doesn't need you to be any of those things because you aren't 
worthy or adequate. That's the whole point. You aren't. He is. And he calls you by his name. And he makes you a citizen of his city. And he invites you to be a co-laborer in the kingdom with Jesus' very own name. It's not by accident that the two weakest-looking churches in Asia Minor are the ones that bear the promises of the future for God and that they have no reprimand, but the Lord holds them up and he says, I will be your strength. Those churches weren't perfect. They weren't perfect by any means. They were a church full of sinful people, but they were faithful and God used them. And he will use you and I and us if we are only faithful as well. As he promises it to the church of Philadelphia for their steadfastness and their faithfulness, so he promises it to us. And so I would invite you to think and to pray and to reflect on the goodness and the strength of God. When you think you don't have it in you, when you think you don't matter, when you think maybe this church doesn't matter in the town in which we are, and whatever, how, what could we really do? It's the Lord who takes us in our weakness, and his strength shines through. Someday we will get to be in heaven. We will get to dwell with the people of Philadelphia. We'll get to sit with them, we'll get to talk to them, and we'll get to share in the heavenly banquet. And we'll share stories about how, you know, that small church in Stowe, Ohio, man, the Lord used. And they'll say, yeah, I know, us too. We didn't think we mattered, but oh my gosh. The Lord opened doors and shut doors and opened other doors. And his promises were fulfilled, weren't they? And we'll say, yeah, they were. And we'll rejoice. Let's be a people that are moved by the steadfastness and faithfulness so that the Lord can fulfill his promises that he makes to us, not because we're great, but because we're weak, and he loves to use that for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that there's an encouragement in the church letter to Philadelphia to us as well. We thank you that we see that sometimes we feel like we, we aren't making a difference, like we aren't contributing, like we're not good enough, strong enough, talented enough, cunning enough, wise enough, eloquent enough as people and as a church. But Lord, you don't care about any of those things. You have a kingdom to run. You have glory to be had and you want us to play a role and a part in it. And so you call us and those who you call, you equip. And those who you equip, who are faithful, you use. And so, Lord, we pray boldly that you might use us. We pray that you might use us in a mighty way in this area to be a church that can affect a difference for the world and your kingdom in this place that you have called us to be. We pray that for those of us who feel like we're just sitting in a seat every week and don't have a significance, that you might call us to our, our purposes and that we might have the courage and the boldness to step out and to serve and to love and to care and to teach and to preach and to cook and to talk and to host and to love so that all might come to a saving knowledge of you. Lord, let us not rest until every single person in Stowe, Ohio, calls upon the name of the Lord and knows that you have loved them. We love you, and we praise you. And together, all his people said, Amen. Amen.